Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now I can also accept Zelle and Venmo. Just use my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 227 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, rendezvous, docking, and jettisoning. The liftoff went as smooth as possible. Buzz wanted to cast a look back at the surface, but his attention was focused on navigating the spacecraft. The ascent of the Eagle was strikingly swift compared with the liftoff of the huge Saturn V rocket from Cape Canaveral. Of course, for the moon launch, there was no atmosphere resisting Eagle, and there was only one-sixth gravity to overcome. Even though Neil and Buzz had worked on this aspect of the flight in simulators, the Eagle's speed in whisking them into space was almost surprising. Nothing they had ever practiced in simulators could compare with their rapid rise. Within seconds, they were streaking high above the moon's surface. Unfortunately, Buzz neglected to turn the camera on just before the ascent so they did not get good photography out of the window as they left the ground. Buzz said he was more concerned with their actual liftoff than with getting good pictures. It was critical to get into orbit with the right speed. As the ascent engine sent them higher, they wallowed around a bit, momentarily struggling to correct the center of gravity with the four rod thrusters. It was a little unnerving. 130 feet vertical rise rate. So a little bit of uh, slow wallowing back and forth. Not very much thruster activity. Roger, mighty fine. In fact, Neil and Buzz were somewhat concerned because they knew that shortly after liftoff, the spacecraft was going to pitch forward about 45 degrees. 
so it could be more nearly horizontal as it gained more velocity and not so much altitude. This procedure was necessary to rendezvous with Columbia in orbit at 60 miles high. Despite the surprises, Buzz described their liftoff to Houston as very smooth and a very quiet ride. Very smooth. Balance couple off. Very quiet ride. There's that one crater around there. Eagle was now flying over the same Apollo 10 landmarks Neil had been looking for during his landing approach to Tranquility. He told Mission Control, we're going right down Highway US-1. I'm going right down US-1. Roger. The ascent stage needed to burn seven minutes plus, and Neil and Buzz stood with braced boots looking out their windows. The moon's landscape was growing smaller, but they had no trouble locating known craters along their track. There's Ritter out there, Buzz said. There it is, right there. There's Smith. Man, that's impressive looking, isn't it? See, there's Ritter out there. And there it is, right there. Right there's Smith. Man, that's impressive looking, isn't it? Eagle's ascent rocket engine continued to burn. And then, at the precise moment it completed its job, it stopped and Buzz announced, shut down, before pausing and reporting the lunar orbit numbers, 47 by 10 nautical miles. Stand by in the engine arm. 90, okay, off, 50, shut down. Neil radioed Houston. The Eagle is back in orbit, having left Tranquility Base and leaving behind a replica from our Apollo 11 patch and the olive branch. Houston replied, Eagle, we copy. The whole world is proud of you. Neil replied, We had a lot of help down there. Oh, Roger, Houston. Eagle is back in orbit, having left tranquility base and leaving behind a, a replica from our Houston, uh, Roger, we copy. The whole world is proud of you. A lot of help In the command module, Mike Collins had sweated out Eagle's liftoff and the first several moments of its flight. For the first time in this mission, Collins let himself believe they might just pull it off. Collins had spent the past three and a half hours laboriously punching data into his computer. Now he accessed his cookbook of emergency rendezvous procedures, ready to take over if necessary. And there, in the eyepiece of his sextant, Collins could see a small black dot, Eagle, climbing up from the craters so steadily that it seemed to be riding up to him on rails. For Collins, it was the happiest sight of the whole mission. Now, Eagle had to chase Columbia for nearly two trips around the moon. To do this, Eagle would fly a lower orbit, taking less time to circle the lunar surface. This is Apollo Control.
control. Columbia has gone behind the moon. Still a little over a minute left until Eagle goes behind the moon. We'll catch these last few minutes of tracking and any possible conversation. After both spacecrafts went around the far side of the moon, it was time for the lunar module to make its first overtaking maneuver. Raising itself into a circular orbit, some 15 miles below Columbia. Collins was prepared to make the burn if Eagle could not, and he nervously counted them down. Collins, 45 seconds to ignition. Buzz, okay. Then, 45 seconds later, Buzz said, We're burning. After the burn, Eagle's orbit was 49 by 46 nautical miles. Columbia's orbit was 63 by 57 nautical miles. In theory, Columbia was supposed to be 60 by 60 nautical miles. And Eagle was supposed to have been 45 by 45. But these numbers were within acceptable limits, and everything was looking good so far. Then Mike and Buzz started working on a new problem, measuring any difference in the plane of their orbits. Reassuringly, they both discovered that their orbital paths were tilted at precisely the same angle, so no sideways burn was required at that time. The lunar module did make a very small in-plane correction to reduce its altitude variations as it overtook the command module. About one-third of the way around in their second orbit, as the spacecrafts emerged into sunlight on the back side of the moon, Collins realized he could see the lunar module without using the sextant. He radioed Eagle. I see you don't have any landing gear. Neil replied. That's good. You're not confused which end to dock with, are you? Then Buzz saw the command module and radioed Columbia. Okay, I can see the shape of your vehicle now, Mike. So close, yet so far away. All that remained was for Eagle to break to a halt using the correct schedule of range versus range rate. While Neil and Buzz were doing this, they made certain to stay exactly on their prescribed approach path, slipping neither left nor right nor up nor down. If they did stray, they would have to waste fuel to correct, and Collins was very concerned about that. Mike looked out through Columbia's docking reticle and saw that Eagle was steady as a rock as they flew down the center line of that final approach path. Then Collins floated back to his couch. Through the rendezvous windows, he could see Eagle slowly closing in, his thrusters spinning flame as Armstrong braked for the final approach. Collins made no adjustment to the controls. Neil was flying in formation with Collins and doing it beautifully with no relative motion between them. At a distance of about 50 feet away, the rendezvous was considered complete, but docking remained to be accomplished. Collins raced from one window to another, taking Hasselblad pictures and movies. Then he suddenly called out, I've got the earth coming up behind you. It's fantastic. Collins captured the sight on film. Eagle, the moon, and the tiny blue and white world. He would always remember the moment, 
all of humanity captured in a single photograph, minus only himself, the photographer. Overall, the rendezvous was excellent. Eagle came up from below, evenly, steadily, as if it was riding on a monorail. Nothing disturbed its line of guidance. It was the kind of thing Buzz had dreamed of while developing his theories and techniques at MIT on manned rendezvous. Now the spacecrafts were ready to dock. To begin the docking procedure, Armstrong turned Eagle around so that the drogue was directly facing Columbia. At this point, control passed from Eagle to Columbia. Collins sighted through his reticle and aligned his probe with Eagle's drogue, almost the same maneuver he did five days ago when he pulled the lunar module loose from the Saturn. But there were a few differences, mainly that the little lunar module ascent stage was nearly empty. It weighed less than 6,000 pounds now, much less than the 33,000 pounds both stages weighed when they were full of fuel. At the instant of contact, Collins felt a barely perceptible nudge. As soon as the two spacecraft were engaged by the three little capture latches, Collins flipped a switch to fire one of the nitrogen bottles to start the retraction cycle to pull the two vehicles together. Then, something strange happened. Instead of a docile little lunar module, suddenly Columbia was attached to a wildly varying spacecraft that seemed to be trying to escape. Specifically, the lunar module was yawing around to Columbia's right, and it was now misaligned by about 15 degrees. Collins worked his right hand to swing Columbia around, but there was nothing he could do to stop the automatic retraction cycle, which took six to eight seconds. All he could hope for was no damage to the equipment, so that if the retraction failed, he could release the lunar module and try again. Things were moving fast now as Collins wrestled with his right-hand controller. Columbia veered back towards centerline and got there with a bang, and the docking latches slammed shut. Miraculously, all was well again. Collins took a breath and radioed Neil and Buzz, saying, That was a funny one, you know. I did not feel a shock, and I thought things were pretty steady. I went to retract there, and that's when all hell broke loose. Did it appear to you to be that you were jerking around quite a bit during the retraction cycle? Neil replied, Ah, uh, yeah. It seemed to happen at the time I put the plus X thrust to it, and apparently it wasn't centered, because somehow or other I accidentally got off in attitude, and then the attitude hold system started firing. Here is the noisy, garbled clip. Uh, 
With Eagle now safely docked with Columbia, Neil and Buzz started vacuuming up as much moon dust as they could so that they would be able to get into the command module without carrying too much of it from the lunar module. No one knew the effects the dust might have on human skin, lungs, or blood, so Mission Control didn't want them to drag along any more of it than necessary. In the command module, Collins hurried down to the tunnel and removed his hatch, probe, and drogue so Neil and Buzz could get through the tunnel. Eventually, the probe and drogue would move into the lunar module and be abandoned with it, since there was no longer a need for it, and it did free up some space in the command module. Houston, do you have any preferences as to what you want us to do with the probe? Over. Uh, Columbia, Houston, uh, standby one. Okay, Eagle says uh, they've got a place for it inside there, so no, no problem. Uh, Roger, that's why we were assuming. The first one through the tunnel was Buzz, with a big smile on his face. Collins grabbed his head with a hand on each temple and prepared to give Buzz a kiss on the forehead, like a parent might greet an errant child. But then Mike got embarrassed and thought he better not kiss him and grabbed Aldrin's hand instead. And when Neil came through, Collins did the same. The reunited crew cavorted about a little bit, all smiles and giggles over their success, and then back to work as usual. But it was a great reunion. Neil and Buzz got into the command module so quickly that Mission Control thought they were still in Eagle. Hello, Eagle. Houston, do you read over? Roger, Eagle. Uh, correction, Roger Columbia, we copy. You guys are speedy. You beat us to the punch here. We had a couple of things for you. What are they? Oh, it was just, uh, we wanted to close the CO2 sensor breaker and uh, give us an RCS onboard readout out of Eagle, but that's all. As Neil and Buzz prepared the limb for its final journey, Collins helped them transfer equipment into Columbia. Neil and Buzz had to go through an elaborate vacuum cleaning procedure to make sure that everything returning from the limb was free of loose dust or dirt. The microbe experts insisted on it in order to keep any lunar germs in the lunar module. Additionally, the crew pumped oxygen from Columbia into the limb so any lunar microbes would have to swim upstream to get into Columbia. Then they carefully transferred the rock boxes. Neil called them million dollar boxes. As Neil handled the two weightless rock boxes snugly zipped into white cloth bags, he could feel the mass of the rocks inside them and he was careful not to move too quickly as he passed them through to Collins. When the boxes were safely stowed on Columbia, Neil passed up a small white pouch 
and told Collins, If you want to have a look at what the moon looks like, you can open that up and look. Don't open the bag, though. Collins unzipped the pouch and saw a small Teflon bag filled with black soot. Armstrong laughed. You'd never have guessed, huh? Collins asked if there were any rocks in the pouch. Neil replied, Yes, there's some rocks in there, too. You can feel them, but you can't see them. They're covered with that graphite. And there was plenty of that graphite on their spacesuits as well. In fact, Armstrong thought they looked like chimney sweeps. Before he and Aldrin could rejoin Collins, they tried to vacuum it off. Unfortunately, the only vacuum cleaner available was just a brush attached to one of the lunar module's air hoses, so it wasn't much help. As it turned out, the vacuuming was not very successful. Lunar grime had worked its way into the fabric. The suits would never be clean again. With their task complete, Neil and Buzz took a final look inside Eagle to verify that they had transferred all they intended into the command module and all the unneeded gear was piled up in the lunar module's tiny cabin. They knew they were saying goodbye to anything left inside the lunar module. Their home on the moon would not be making the trip back to Earth. Armstrong and Aldrin exited to Columbia and closed the hatch. Eagle was now dead weight. Hello, Columbia, Houston. We'd like you to start down your jettison checklist. Uh, we recommend picking up uh, page F11-12, and we'd like to uh, jettison in uh, 10 minutes. That'll be 1-3-0-1-4-4-5. Over. Houston, Columbia, I better go for logic bus arm. Stand by. Columbia, Houston, you got to go. Columbia, Houston, you can... Undock at your convenience, uh, a correction jettison at your convenience. We would like you to uh, jettison Eagle and station keep in T-47 and station keep, and we'll have a, another attitude and a maneuver for you so that you will be okay for TEI. Over. Roger that. Yeah, I'm standing by to go to T-47 as soon as you give me a go for fire arm. All right, I uh, thought we gave you that, uh, Mike, your go for power arm and your go for jettison. Collins flipped a switch. There was a small bang, and away she went, backing off with stately grace. Down 83 reading, minus 4 balls 3, minus 3 balls 3, fairly loud noise, and it appears to be departing, uh, oh, I would guess, uh, several feet per second. Uh, Roger, can you try to station keep with it, Mike? Just stand by now. Will do. Okay, I trusted back. I trusted back toward it a little bit, Charlie. There she goes. It was a good one. Roger, Dodger. We got uh, Eagle looking good. Uh, it's holding cabin pressure, and it picked up about two feet per second from that jettison. I believe that. I can see some uh, cracks uh, in the outer coating uh, around the tunnel. The thermal protective uh, covering. I don't think it has anything to do with structure. Roger. Uh, 
fellow Columbia Houston. We'll have a uh, attitude and a little uh, blip burn for you at about one three zero thirty, so we can uh, separate from Eagle over. That's fine. For his part, Collins was glad to get rid of the spacecraft that had been nothing but a worry to him for six days. But he did notice in Armstrong and Aldrin a quiet sadness. Of course, without a heat shield, there was no way to bring Eagle home. No museum could ever put it on display. It would linger in lunar orbit while Mission Control monitored each component's final hours of life. At first, they thought Eagle might remain in orbit for hundreds of years. In fact, it crashed on the moon shortly after its fuel and batteries ran out, blasting a modest new crater in the dust. But there was no time for sentiment now. The astronauts still had a long journey ahead of them and a trans-Earth injection burn coming up in a few hours. Salutations from the Buckeye State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 227 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11, Rendezvous, Docking, and Jettisoning. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. In case you haven't heard, there is a new RSS feed for the first 14 episodes of the podcast. You can find it on the homepage on the right side of the page. This means that the first 14 episodes are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. To find the podcast there, search for Space Rocket History Archive. I plan to add five or about five more episodes to the archive this month if I can get some reasonably priced Wi-Fi. Today, we salute my satellite donors. These donors have donated for four years in a row now, and they get a satellite emoji next to their name on the donors page. Thank you, satellite donors, for your continued support. I really do enjoy handing out these longevity emojis. Okay, one other announcement. We are currently traveling, and my access to email, Twitter, and Facebook is limited at some times. If you do need to contact me, the best method is by email, mike at spacerockethistory.com. Had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I want to apologize for the quality of some of those audio clips. It seems the communication from Eagle was usually very noisy and a little garbled. I got the clips from the NASA archive, so I guess that's the best available. I was also disappointed that NASA didn't have the clips for when the spacecrafts were on the far side of the moon. They had the transcripts, and I could read what they were saying, but it would have been nice to have had those audio clips. I would have really liked to heard them and played them for you. 
Now, I do have a little bonus clip here if you are still interested in heart rates. Mission Control measured Buzz and Neil's heart rate during the ascent of the lunar module into orbit. Here's the clip. This is Apollo Control. During uh, the ascent phase, the heart rates on the Eagle crew reached 90 for Neil Armstrong, 120 for Buzz Aldrin. They're now back down in the 80s. So it would seem that Neil was not too concerned during that ascent. Well, do you think Collins was glad to see Buzz and Neil? He was almost happy enough to kiss old Buzz on the forehead. That was a close one. <laughs> I'm glad he thought that one over. We, we need to keep things kind of professional up there. No kissing in the command module, please. <laughs> I found <laughs> I found another very minor but interesting discrepancy in the order of events. Collins wrote in his book that Buzz came through the tunnel first from the lunar module into the command module. But NASA records show that Neil was first. Now in this case, I tend to believe Collins because that was the point in time when Mission Control lost track of Neil and Buzz. They thought they were still in the Eagle and it turned out they were already in Columbia. So I'm going to side with Collins on this one. <laughs> it doesn't really mean anything. It's just a just some little detail that caught my interest. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the homepage spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. There are a lot of good things on the homepage. If you're not checking that out, you're missing it. I was very pleased and relieved to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Peter O. from Ireland donated at the Apollo level. Nails L. donated again this year and was promoted to the Soyuz level. Megan T. donated at the Vostok level, and since this was her third year donating, she earned the highly sought-after moon emoji. John F. donated at the Mercury level. At Dane Unicorn made an additional donation this year and was promoted to the Orion level with rocket, moon, and satellite emojis. Alexander R. donated at the Soyuz level. Jimmy at FreeHollowBooks.com donated at the Sputnik level and earned his rocket emoji. Joseph S. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level, and ClickSpring increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. Turns out, we lost two Patreons last month, and we've gained one so far this month. That brings the Patreon total to 137, and we're now 13 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donor total has reached 258, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, Please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page 
and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. Have an item to give away this week to one of the 2017 donors. It is the NASA 3 one inch in diameter meatball sticker. To select a winner, I gave each donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Guido Tack. Guido, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I have several more of these stickers, so we'll have a new drawing next week for the 2017 donor group. I was pleased to see the podcast received 14 new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past few weeks. I would like to thank Steve Wade for taking the time to write a very kind review and giving the podcast a five-star rating. And I would like to thank the 13 anonymous raters that gave the podcast a five-star rating. I certainly do appreciate that. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we're trying to get the Apollo 11 crew home, or at least pretty close. In podcast news, uh, last week I gave you the top 10 countries for downloads for September, and now I have countries 11 through 20 for September. Norway remains at 11. Ireland moves up to 12. Austria moves up to 13. Denmark moves up to 14. Coming in at 15, Spain, 16, Switzerland, 17, Cyprus, 18, Italy, 19, India, and 20, South Africa. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners in countries 11 through 20. Thanks for listening. As I mentioned before, we are traveling now. This trip has been much more challenging than the last as far as getting Wi-Fi. I had to shell out another 90 bucks to get 10 gig more data on Saturday. So I'm trying to economize on bandwidth as much as possible until we return home. This past week, we had a chance to visit the Great Lakes Science Center, home of NASA Glenn Visitor Center. It was $15 for adults' general admission without any extras. Now, the NASA Glenn Visitor Center was inside the Great Lakes Science Center. Basically, NASA had one good-sized room there. The centerpiece for the room was the Skylab 3 Command Module Capsule, and I got to touch the door. They also had a moon rock and a scale model of the International Space Station. The Science Center was geared more to children, and fortunately, I married a science teacher, So, Mrs. SRH is going to talk about the Great Lakes Science Center. Hello, everyone. This is Mrs. SRH. The Great Lakes Science Center is a great place for kids to spend the day exploring a multitude of science concepts. The hands-on exhibits are large and inviting. The activities range from exploring light and sound waves, electricity, vortexes, DNA, and medical science. You can even take a virtual tour on a sky glider. It is an interactive science playground and a great place for a science field trip. Okay, thank you, Mrs. SRH. 
The Great Lakes Science Center is located in Cleveland, Ohio, and it is right on the edge of Lake Erie. Keep in mind the timing of your visit, as it's not open when the Cleveland Browns have a home football game, which is usually on Sunday afternoons. Okay, that's about all I have for this episode. I will try to have episode 228 ready by next Thursday. So long for now.